Imagine That Studios, in association with Ace Books, presents Tales from the Archives, Volume 4, the official anthology of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences. It's one of Brandon's cases. I was beginning to wonder if he did anything at all. Whatever do you mean by that, Eliza? Are you impugning another agent? It's just that, well, I haven't seen many in all my hours and hours down here. That is actually more to do with Agent Hill's... Uh, uh, eccentricities. He likes to get it right before he will file anything. Trouble is, he likes to include illustrations. Hmm, I see what you mean. He seems to have drawn in all the margins. Are those... Yes, Eliza, I'm afraid. Monkeys do tend to crop up quite often in his reports. It's a good thing he's such a wonderful field agent, since I fear he could not make his living as an artist. <laughs> I'm looking forward to reading how he and Bill Wheatley get on together. If there are any monkeys. Down by the River by Tim Dodge. Bill Wheatley leaned against the wall on the railroad platform, hands in pockets, cursing to himself about the absence of any breeze. Beyond the train tracks, the rushing waters of the Susquehanna River glistened in the sunlight, inviting a traveler who had just arrived on horseback to jump in for a dip. A couple of boys dangled fishing poles over the water. Not a bad way to spend the afternoon, he thought. Been too long since I caught a few fish. The whistle of an oncoming train broke his reverie. Arriving just a few minutes ahead of schedule, the 1210 rumbled to a stop, plowing a hole through the humidity that closed just as quickly as it opened. A door on the side of one of the cars opened, and a hissing pneumatic ramp extended downward to the platform. Only three passengers disembarked. A young man carrying a battered suitcase, an older, portly gentleman in a rumpled suit, and a handsome man in a neat, polished suit, complete with dark brown bowler hat. The man carried a small satchel and a larger suitcase. He looked up and down the platform, maneuvered around the young man, who was now embracing a woman who had been waiting, and spotted Bill. Striding over, he said, Agent Wheatley? The one and only, Bill replied. You Agent Hill? Agent Brandon Hill, Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences Canadian Division, said the other, placing his suitcase on the platform and extending his hand. Bill took it. Agent Brandon Hill, welcome to Afton, New York, such as it is. Hill glanced around at his new surroundings. Seems to be a quaint little place. Bill snorted. <laughs> if you say so. It ain't San Francisco, that's for sure. Can't imagine much interesting ever happens in a place like this. You may be surprised, Hill said with a grim look on his face. And what lies beneath the surface in rural places such as this? Nova Scotia, for example. 
Sounds like a story I'd like to hear over a drink sometime. But I'm guessing you weren't sent down here all the way from Ontario without a serious reason. So tell me, why are we here? That is a conversation we had best have in private, Hill replied. It's not something we want others to overhear. Bill looked around the now-empty platform and observed the hills and the fields beyond, populated by a sizable number of cows and exactly zero people. The flowing waters of the river were also making a racket. Yeah, I guess you can't be too careful. I hear that livestock just can't keep a secret. The Canadian sighed. Please lead the way, Agent Wheatley. Bill's horse was tied to a post around the corner from the train depot. He guided it down the village's tiny main street, a dirt road perhaps 25 yards wide, with small brick buildings lining either side. Horses tethered to wagons were tied outside a few of them, but few people walked around in the midday heat. I just got into town, Bill said, so I haven't looked for accommodations yet, but there's a place called the Afton Inn, he pointed across the street. Brandon flashed a smile at one of the few pedestrians, an attractive young lady passing on their left, but she seemed not to notice. He directed his response to Bill. It will do. The small hotel had rooms available. You fellows grain dealers? the pudgy desk clerk asked. Actually, Brandon replied, I am an investor seeking new opportunities. My companion, he gestured toward Bill, is well-versed in modern agriculture and will visit some of the local farmers on my behalf. Investors, huh? The man seemed unsure whether Brandon was pulling his leg or not. Well, if you're really interested in what's happening in this town, you'd do well to pay a call on Dr. Hayes. Dr. Hayes? Brandon tilted his head, looking inquisitive. The mayor, Dr. Philetus Hayes. First mayor the village has ever had. He's also one of our doctors here in town. He's paid calls on every farm in this area, I'd wager. You want places to put your money? He'll know where you can find them. The clerk pressed a button. Within seconds, a robot of polished brass emerged with a luggage cart. Brandon and Bill watched the machine load their luggage onto the cart, push it to a conveyor at the bottom of a set of worn-looking stairs, then load the bags onto the conveyor. It followed the bags onto the conveyor, pressed another button, and rode up the stairs. By the time the two agents had reached the top, the robot had unloaded all the luggage. Pretty impressive for a one-horse town, Bill remarked. The rooms were cramped, but comfortable. Once settled in, they convened in Brandon's quarters. Okay, Bill said, crossing his arms in front of himself. We are away from prying ears. Now, what's our mission? Brandon grimaced. Are you at all familiar with an organization known as the House of Usher? You mean, aside from bumping into them in North Carolina, Detroit, and San Francisco? No, never heard of them. Brandon raised an eyebrow. Do tell. Maybe later, over a drink. Bill's memories of the recent showdown in California were still fresh, and not all that pleasant, aside from those of Eliza Braun. What's Usher got to do with why we're here? Brandon told him. When he had finished, Bill asked, And? They gave you more than that, didn't they? Brandon shook his head. The details are spotty. 
Well, that sure ain't much to go on. Bill scratched his brown beard. This is rural America, Chief. There's likely woods all around this town, not to mention dozens of farms with wagons, a river running through the middle of it, and a railroad. And we're supposed to be on the lookout on any of those ways when we don't even know what we're looking for? Brandon stood and clapped him on the shoulder. Glad you understand, he said. Now, I suggest we make a house call on this Dr. Hayes. The desk clerk gave them a small map of the village and directions to Dr. Hayes' office and told them it was just a five-minute walk away. His estimate was accurate, and the two agents soon entered a tasteful office on a leafy street corner at the intersection of Main and Spring Streets. The small waiting room was empty, but voices came from the other side of a closed door, leading to what they assumed was an examination room. Seeing no alternative, they seated themselves in two of the available chairs, picked newspapers from a bin on the floor, and settled in to wait. They had barely warmed their seats before the door opened. A tall, dark-haired man in a pressed suit escorted a woman and a small girl from the examination room. After giving the woman some last advice and showing them out the door, he scribbled something on a piece of paper, dropped it in a pneumatic tube, and looked at his two visitors. May I help you, gentlemen? I hope so, Brandon answered as the tube made a whooshing sound. Dr. Hayes, is it? It is, the doctor replied. And you are? My name is Brandon Hill. I am an agent of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences in the service of Her Majesty Queen Victoria of Great Britain. My colleague, he pointed toward Bill, is Bill Wheatley an agent of the Office of the Supernatural and the Metaphysical, a unit of the United States government. Bill nodded. Dr. Hayes shook their hands. To what do I owe the honor? Bill spoke up. We understand that you're the mayor of this village. That is so. Hayes eyed them warily. Is this a matter of public affairs? One of an incipient danger, Brandon said. We have reason to believe that it will come right through your village. The doctor frowned. Are the people of this village at risk? Most likely not, but the people with whom we are dealing don't have a history of worrying about innocence. We would like a few minutes of your time to get some sense of who might be involved and what they might do. You think townsfolk are behind this danger? I don't think we should rule it out, Doc, Bill said. They wouldn't be the first to be recruited by somebody sweet-talking them and promising big rewards. Hayes looked shaken. These are God-fearing people, one and all. What you're saying is hard to accept. He withdrew a handkerchief from his pocket and mopped his brow with it. If we are going to discuss the possibility that some of Afton's citizens are in an illicit conspiracy... I would like to have one of the village trustees on hand as well. That may not be a prudent move, Dr. Hayes. Brandon's voice was warm but firm. The more people who hear of this, the more apt the conspirators, if there are any, are to be tipped off. I want at least one trustee informed. The doctor's manner was just as firm. If this is as serious as you indicate, it is not something for the executive alone to hear. The man I have in mind is beyond reproach. Brandon and Bill exchanged glances. You're absolutely certain he can be trusted? asked Bill. 
I would trust him with the mayorship were I to become incapacitated or to pass from this world, Hayes said. He is as trustworthy as any in this room. The two agents locked eyes again. Bill gave Brandon a look that said, You're in charge. You make the call. Brandon considered for a moment. Is this gentleman available now? Brandon asked. I believe he is, Dr. Hayes said, closing his book. He is a prominent citizen of this town and serves as our chief law enforcement officer. Disorder here is rare, so that Post does not occupy much of his time. We should be able to see him immediately. Well then, Brandon said, stepping aside and gesturing toward the door. Let's go see him. The doctor led the two agents east on Spring Street toward the main street from which they had come. Once there, they crossed the quiet street and headed south past a row of brick structures. At last, they arrived at a tidy wood frame home far down the street from the village hall. Hayes stopped in front of the house and announced, This is the home of Zenas Tarbell. His family has lived in this town for generations. His grandfather, Thomas Tarbell, officiated as Justice of the Peace at the wedding of Joseph Smith, founder of the Mormon religion, at his home on the east side of the river. His family name is distinguished and respected here. You may lay any concerns about his honor to rest. Don't know about religion, Bill remarked, but I've heard some strange things about the Mormons. Hayes chuckled. Smith was caught trying to convince unwary villagers that he could walk on the river, when, in fact, his associates had laid a boardwalk just below the water's surface. Eventually, he was driven out of this part of the state and headed west. Nonetheless, Judge Tarbell's reputation was sterling, a tradition continued by his grandson. They went to the door. Within moments of the doctor's knock, a gray-haired woman wearing a white linen dress answered the door. Hello, Mary, Hayes said, smiling. Dr. Hayes, she replied with her own warm smile. Such a pleasure to see you here. No, the pleasure is mine. Hayes introduced the agents and asked if her husband was available. She went to fetch him, and they entered the modest but charmingly decorated home. The furnishings were simple but elegant, with an oriental rug over the shining wood floor and a couch with floral fabric against one wall. A painting of an earnest young man in a military uniform graced the mantel over the fireplace. That is Mr. Tarbell in his younger years, Hayes remarked. He fought honorably in the War of the Rebellion. The man who entered the room just then was, without question, an older, more robust version of that displayed in the portrait. His steely gray hair did little to subtract from his physical prowess. Hayes introduced Brandon and Bill as agents of their respective organizations. Tarbell frowned. What brings government officials to my home? Hayes looked distinctly uncomfortable. This is a matter best discussed in private, Zenas. Now the other man looked genuinely worried, but he said, Of course. Please, my study. He escorted them to a room lined with bookshelves and adorned with a small writing desk and a few plain chairs. Bill noted that most of the titles on the shelves were volumes about Greek and Roman history. Tarbell gestured for them to sit. A robot, gears whirring, brought a tray bearing cups of cool water, then quickly departed. Tarbell said, Now then, gentlemen, why don't you tell me what this is about? Bill began, Are you familiar with an organization known as the House of Usher? The darkened look on Tarbell's face gave him his answer. Yes, well, 
My superiors have reason to believe that Usher is transporting a weapon of immense destructive potential southward. All indications are that they are moving it under cover of darkness, perhaps all the way through Pennsylvania, where it may be deployed in the nation's capital or points west. Tarbell rubbed his chin. Bill thought it looked as if the man had shaved just before they arrived. Do we know exactly how destructive the weapon may be? Is it a bomb? A gun? Hill shook his head. I don't know what form it takes. However, it is powerful enough to threaten thousands of lives if deployed in a sufficiently populated area. Hayes' face had grown pale. I knew this was serious. That is why I felt the trustees have a right to know. However, as the agents have pointed out, it is possible, if extremely unlikely, that some residents of Afton may have some involvement in this matter, and it would be prudent to limit knowledge of our suspicions. Tarbell's face was grim. I'm the chief law enforcement official for this village, he declared. It is my responsibility to stop any and all illicit conduct within its borders. I offer my services to you both in the effort to apprehend those responsible. Brandon kept his face impassive. There appear to be a number of ways this item could be transported through the town. Where would you suggest we focus our efforts? The river seems unlikely. Tarbell studied the cup of water in his hands. It's been a hot summer and the water level is low. There are dozens of dairy farms around here with barns large enough to stash a weapon like that. Depending on how big it is, it could be transported under cover on a milk wagon. There are three main roads running through the village, Bill observed. We'll need to split up to cover all of them. That shouldn't be a concern, Tarbell said, standing a bit taller. I face down rebel soldiers on the battlefield. Smugglers with a milk wagon will be a little trouble. Bill snuck a sideways glance at Brandon. The other kept a straight face, but Bill was certain that they were thinking the same thing. Something was not quite right about Zenas Tarbell. Dr. Hayes noted that they had already taken up a good deal of Tarbell's time, and they took their leave. Outside, and back in the summer heat, Dr. Hayes bid them farewell and left for his office, leaving the two agents alone on the path. Well, Bill asked. Well, I think Tarbell knows more than he wants to admit, Brandon said. That bravado about facing down rebel soldiers was a little excessive. Even I wouldn't play it up that much, particularly when the battle in question happened a few decades ago. If he's in on this, then we should be watching the river at night, Bill said. He apparently takes us for fools. That river was flowing like it's rained for the last week, but our man in there said the water was too low for a boat to carry the weapon. Brandon nodded agreement. Agent Wheatley, I suggest we go our separate ways and learn as much as we can about this town. Something tells me that all is not as it seems. They split up and set about scouring the village. Bill hopped in the saddle to explore the roads, the riverbanks, and a few of the farms. Brandon strolled around the village streets, hoping to find locals with whom he could strike up conversation. Despite the day's heat, he was able to find a few people on the streets, but they provided little useful information. No one had an ill word to say about Felitas Hayes or Zenas Tarbell. After 90 minutes of wandering the business district and the homes farther down Main Street, his frustration grew. Deciding a change of course was necessary, he turned onto a street leading up the hill, passed a few houses showing no outward signs of life, 
turned onto a short cross street, and then right up yet another hill. As he mopped his brow with his handkerchief, he questioned the wisdom of a course change that involved so many hills. The map said that this hill was Orchard Street, and it was there that his luck changed. Outside a large house with a porch wrapping around the front and sides stood a young woman, perhaps twenty years old, hanging laundry to dry from a rope stretched between two maple trees. Her brown hair was pinned up, and she wore a pale blue dress that did not look exactly new. So intent was she on her chore that she started when he called to her. My apologies, miss, he said. I did not intend to startle you. He flashed that smile that had so often charmed the ladies he met. I was hoping perhaps you could give me some information. She returned her attention to the laundry. I don't generally talk to men I don't know. Of course, we haven't been introduced. He stepped forward and extended his hand. I am Brandon Hill. Pleased to meet you, Mr. Hill, she said, taking his hand, though her tone was wary. After waiting a few beats, Brandon forced the issue. And you are? Ida Scott. And a pleasure it is to meet you, Miss Scott. May I trouble you for some information? Her face darkened into a nervous expression. My husband isn't home at the moment. If you wouldn't mind coming back later... I will gladly speak with him at another time, Brandon said, but you may be able to assist me. You see, I am an investor who has just arrived in town and am seeking potential business partners. I have met with a few citizens here, but I want to know who the prominent businessmen are. She rested her hands on her hips. You should be able to find that out by walking up and down Main Street. And I have done that. In fact, I made the acquaintance of the village's mayor, Dr. Hayes, and a Mr. Zenas Tarbell. Tell me, what is their reputation here? She appeared to relax a little now. And Dr. Hayes is very well regarded here. He is the village's first mayor, you know. Brandon nodded at this. She went on, but watch out for Zenas Tarbell. I don't trust that man. Interesting, Brandon thought. Why? He impressed me as the honest sort. Ida looked around as though she was concerned that someone might overhear. There wasn't another soul in sight. Rumor has it that he does business down by the river after dark, she said in a lowered voice. Maybe he's fishing, Brandon suggested. She gave an emphatic shake of her head. When the men in this town go fishing, it's on weekends and before dawn, not after sunset. He can't possibly be up to anything good down there so late at night. A man like that should be home with his family. Brandon thanked her for the information and resumed his circuit of the village. After another hour of getting almost nothing useful, he headed back to the hotel. He found Bill at the polished bar, sipping whiskey and watching four men at an adjoining table playing poker. Brandon sat down next to him and signaled the barkeep for a drink. He didn't speak until his own glass was in front of him. What did you find out? That there's a whole lot of cows in this town and not that many people. Brandon grunted. Did you see any people? Some, not many. And the ones I saw, there's no way they're in league with the House of Usher. What makes you so sure? The bartender, a man who looked to be about 19 and who wore a shabby suit, wandered down to check the level of Bill's drink. Bill waited until he had moved back down the bar and said, they are just too busy trying to make a living. These are hard-working folks putting in long days to keep their families fed. 
I don't think any of them would leave the barn long enough to mess around with our usher friends. Maybe not, Brandon agreed. But I was able to learn something questionable about our Mr. Tarbell. Bill gave him an inquisitive look, and Brandon relayed his conversation with Ida Scott. When he had finished, Bill scoffed. A rumor from a little girl. Not much to go on. Yes, but it adds to my own doubts about the man, Brandon said. It may be nothing more than village gossip, but I think it's enough to warrant our watching him. Well, there's more to go on than what I came up with, Bill said. He motioned to the bartender for another whiskey. What do you have in mind? We find an inconspicuous place near his home and observe the comings and goings, and we bring something to give us an idea of what's happening. Accepting the drink from the bartender, Bill raised his glass and said, It looks like things are finally starting to get interesting around here. Brandon leaned against the maple tree a hundred yards away from Tarbell's home on South Main Street. The sky had started its slow shift from blue to purple to black, which helped to conceal his presence, but also made observation more difficult. He carried a heavy bag slung over one shoulder, throwing knives tucked into his boots and a ray gun in the breast pocket of his jacket. Goggles adorned his forehead. He knew that Bill, a hundred yards from the house in the other direction, was similarly armed, though without the goggles. They should be well prepared for anything Zenas Tarbell had up his sleeve. Each man also carried a cigar and matches for use as a prearranged signal. The one who spotted their quarry first was to light his cigar. This would indicate that the other should move in his direction. Brandon could not stand the taste or smell of cigars, but it was the most subtle warning they could devise. The last of the July sunlight was nearly gone when Brandon saw a figure emerge from the house and walk in the opposite direction from him. He pushed the goggles down over his eyes and adjusted a knob on the side next to his right eye. His view zoomed in on the other person. He was 90% certain it was Tarbell. Moments later, the unmistakable glow of a cigar removed all doubt. He set off in the same direction. Bill was waiting for him by the large, three-story building in the middle of Main Street. I disappeared around the corner as he came by, he said. He's heading toward the hardware store. With the goggles pushed back up on his forehead, Brandon could just make out in the dim light a figure walking in the direction of where the street ended. The river, he muttered. Looks like it, Bill checked his weapons. Assured that they were ready, he nodded toward their rapidly escaping target. Shall we? The two agents followed down the empty street, keeping a comfortable distance between them and the lawman. He turned right, just past Horton's hardware, and disappeared from view, causing them to pick up their pace, Brandon feeling for his ray gun without breaking stride. They followed the trail to the right when they reached the end of the street, then stopped to listen. The distinct sound of men's voices came from a few hundred feet in front of them, through some trees and brush bordering the river bank. Quickly, Brandon dropped the sack he was carrying and extracted a wooden box with a large horn protruding from one side and two rows of knobs and switches on its top. He flipped two switches, adjusted the knobs left and right, then flipped another switch. The voices came loud and clear through a screen on the side. What do you think you're doing? The voice was Tarbell's. What I have to, came a gruff, unfamiliar voice. I suggest you leave me be. 
I'm the law in this town, Tarbell declared, and I'll decide when to leave someone be. Jimmy, how many times do I have to chase you out of here at night? Whatever it is you're up to, it's going to land you in a heap of trouble. I don't think you want to meddle in this, Zenus. Nothing good will come of it. Are you threatening an officer of the law? Tarbell's tone was angry now. The other's tone was icy. No, I'm giving you sound advice. Brandon and Bill looked at each other. Brandon pointed in the direction of the voices, put a finger to his lips, and began to crawl on hands and knees toward them. Bill arranged his ray guns so that they were within easy reach, then followed, also crawling. There was a glow up ahead. Whoever Tarbell was speaking with was carrying a lantern. By now the night sky had grown completely dark except for the half-moon rising in the east. Without it and the lantern light, Bill would have found it impossible to see Brandon. Brandon stopped when they were at the top of the riverbank, twenty yards from the pair. The two men were standing on the slope, a few feet from the water. The one who appeared to have Tarbell's build was gesturing with his right hand, while the other stood perfectly still. The agents could hear his voice, but could make out only some of his words. It mixed in with the chirping of crickets, the occasional frog croak, and the swishing of oars in the water. Bill looked at Brandon. I hear something on the water, but I can't make it out. I do believe, Brandon said, that a boat is arriving. He was correct. Slicing through the moonlight, reflecting off the water, was what appeared to be a large raft, maybe twenty feet wide and easily as long. Two men were pushing it with long oars, something very large set in the middle of the raft. That don't look like a delivery for the general store, Bill observed. Brandon pulled the goggles back over his eyes and zoomed in on the object. It was a large box with numerous wires running across its top, fastened to electrodes sprouting from the sides. In the poor light, the wires looked white and gray. A crank jutted from the box's side, a spout from the back edge of the top. The two navigators pushed the raft in the direction of the shoreline. That was all the evidence Brandon needed. He got to his feet, brandishing his ray gun, with Bill following suit. They both took careful aim at Tarbell and his companion. A ray beam struck Tarbell broadside, causing him to drop like a sack of bricks. This was a problem, as neither Brandon nor Bill had fired their weapons. Brandon looked to his left for the source of the gunfire. Someone was walking down the slope toward the other man, who was untouched by the weapon's discharge. Brandon frowned at what he thought he was seeing. Bill hissed, Is that a lady? Unless some of the men in this town wear skirts, I would say it is. The woman reached the man standing on shore. Before she could say anything, he snapped, You didn't need to do that, Ida. I could have handled him. They are here, James. Brandon knew the voice. It was unmistakably that of Ida Scott. Tarbell is a problem we don't need. He'd just try to arrest them and us. What about when he comes to? Heavens, James, tie him up! Ida sounded exasperated. Shouldn't a husband think of these things himself? Brandon hissed. That's the woman who told me Tarbell can't be trusted. She was quite convincing. Enough so that we've been following the wrong person. Bill snorted. Women can be very convincing when they want something. He pointed to his left. I'm going to circle around behind the raft and get a good look at what's on it, but I think I know what it is. It's the weapon, Brandon said. I was able to see it through my goggles. 
do whatever you think necessary to destroy it. I'm thinking it'll make a nice decoration at the bottom of this river. With that, Bill scooted away. By then, the raft was five feet or so from shore. Brandon crouched down and descended the riverbank. The humid air smelled musty. He heard James call a greeting to the two men on the raft. Who's the girl? One of the men asked without returning the greeting. My wife, James said. She's with me. Your orders were to come alone. You can trust her. She knows about Usher. She wants to help. I don't like this. The pilot sounded like a man not used to disobedience. James was silent for a moment, then gestured at Ida. She apparently got the message as she began to climb up the bank. Brandon crouched behind a thin tree, his gun drawn and ready. The three men began to talk about the cargo. I know a farm not far from here where we can keep it overnight. The farmer has a friend on the other side of town who just happens to not be his wife. He'll be more than happy to store it for me. Brandon's plan formed in an instant. James would be his first target. He would trust Bill to sink the raft, leaving him to pick off the other two. He took careful aim. Drop it, said a voice behind him. Mrs. Scott, Brandon said. What a pleasure to see you again so soon. This is a fully charged ray gun pointed right at the back of your head, Ida said. Unless you want your head to light up like the moon, I suggest you drop your weapon now. Seeing the wisdom in that suggestion, he did as he was told. Turn around, slowly, she commanded. And keep your hands where I can see them. He turned, his hands raised. Nicely done today. You actually had me believing that Mr. Tarbell was involved in this plot. My compliments. You shouldn't have poked around here. There's no investments to be made in Afton. James and I are taking our share of the money from this shipment, shaking the dust of this town off our feet, and going where we can make a real living. Brandon cocked his head. Actually, I think your town is quite charming. Shows what you know. March. She pointed with the gun toward the shoreline. Again, Brandon found the suggestion of an armed woman most persuasive. They reached the shore, and Ida announced, I found a spy. James whirled around. Who's this? Some guy who came around today saying he was looking for investments, Ida said. I told him he's looked in the wrong place. That's a ministry agent, you fool. The man who had been speaking with James took a step forward. He's after the delivery. Ministry agent, James said, sounding baffled. You were stupid enough to lead him here. The man sounded even angrier than he had before. He turned to his silent colleague. Kill him. The other man wiped greasy hair out of his eyes, stepped toward them, and withdrew a gun. Brandon couldn't help noticing that it wasn't a ray gun. It will be my pleasure, the man sneered. He raised the gun, pulled back the hammer, took aim at Brandon's forehead, and went sprawling into the water when the raft exploded at his feet. The other man was also knocked into the water. He came up, wounded and whirling frantically, trying to locate the cargo. However, the raft was in pieces, and the cargo was nowhere to be seen. You idiots! he screamed at the couple on shore. You led the ministry to us. Now the weapon is ruined. You will be held accountable. He staggered out of the water and pulled his own gun from his pants. I will never work with small-town imbeciles again. He raised the gun, shortly after which a ray beam knocked him senseless to the ground. 
Damn right you won't, Bill said as he emerged from the shadows. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Scott had apparently decided to call it an evening as they began to scramble up the riverbank. Bill sighed and shook his head. That's just rude. They didn't even introduce themselves. Two quick blasts of his ray gun halted their forward progress for the foreseeable future. The two agents approached the unconscious figures laying on the ground. Too bad, Brandon said. She is rather attractive. She's also married, Bill said. Two, a man with less common sense than my horse has, but she's still married. No accounting for taste. He shrugged in the direction of the spot where he'd been captured. Mind keeping an eye on them for a moment while I fetch the rope in my bag? What was it our friend over there said right before he went swimming? Oh, yes, Bill said. It will be my pleasure. Brandon, Bill, Dr. Hayes, and Tarbell sat the next day in Tarbell's parlor, sipping fresh, cold lemonade. Mary Tarbell brought some small cakes on a polished silver tray, apparently not wanting to trust the robot with them. Brandon and Bill took them appreciatively, but Dr. Hayes demurred. As she left the room, she admonished her husband to not overdo it. You were attacked. Give yourself time to heal. When she was gone, Tarbell said, The four of them are locked up and should go away for a long time. He shook his head. I never thought James Scott was terribly smart. I knew he was looking for trouble. That's why I've been keeping an eye on him down by the river at night. I didn't figure him for the kind to get mixed up in an affair like this. My impression, Brandon said, is that his wife is the real force in that family. I haven't met many women like that. Uh, Not American women, anyway. There is one from New Zealand. Bill stared at him and formed the words, you two, with his mouth, but didn't speak them aloud. Well, she'll have to use her force in prison, the mayor said quietly. I am glad this town is rid of the two of them. He looked at the agents. I hope their example has not spoiled your opinion of the citizens of Afton. We are a peace-loving and law-abiding people. The Scots are not representative. Brandon said, Dr. Hayes, you have a lovely village. The people I've met have been gracious and welcoming. I look forward to the day that I return. The mayor nodded. So your work here is done? It is. Brandon looked at Bill. Though my American colleague here did the majority of the work, I still draw breath today because he is an excellent shot. Tarbell spoke up. I believe I speak for the entire town when I extend you my thanks. As do I, Hayes added. Glad to be of service, Bill said, struggling to keep from grinning. Brandon emptied his glass. We should be on our way. He and Bill stood and shook hands all around. Dr. Hay said, You are welcome back in Afton any time. Out on the street, Bill untethered his horse. You ever want to see this place again? Eh, it has its charms. Fine place to visit. Bill shook his head. Give me the city any day. Let's ride. He climbed up on the horse. Need a lift to the train station? Actually, Brandon said, I think I'll walk. Suit yourself. He tipped his hat toward the Canadian. I'll look you up if I'm ever north of the border. We can always use men like you in Her Majesty's service. Bill laughed. (laughs) I'm pretty sure I would wreck any good relations between Canada and the U.S. of A. He shook his horse's reins and galloped off. 
Brandon smiled. This town isn't so bad, he said to no one in particular as he strolled down Main Street. Two young women in bright dresses walked past him in the other direction, giggling over some inside joke. He flashed them that smile again, but they appeared not to notice as they walked away. It has its charms, he muttered. Many of them. Tim Dodge is a writer and podcaster living near Syracuse, New York. He is the author of the podcast novels Acts of Desperation and Purgatory, both available at patiobooks.com. Purgatory was published in print and ebook form in 2012. He has completed another novel about a ghost hunter and is working on a new one about subliminal mind control by street musicians. He hosts the Geek Side of Life podcast at www.thegeeksideoflife.com an exploration of geek culture, one podcast at a time. His blog, If My Thought Dreams Could Be Seen, can be found at www.timdodgestories.com. He has appeared in podcast productions such as Murder at Avedon Hill and The Guild of the Cowrie Catchers. For the past several years, he has been a regular panelist at the Balticon Science Fiction Fantasy Convention. He grew up in Afton, New York, and his parents still live in the big house at the top of Orchard Street, where Brandon Hill met Ida Scott. It is his opinion that the Afton Inn would be way cooler if it actually had a luggage-transporting robot. Theme music composed and performed by Alex White. Find out more at thegearheart.com. For more from the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, visit ministryofpeculiaroccurrences.com to order The Diamond Conspiracy, now available everywhere in your favorite bookstores and online in print, digital, and audio. This podcast is protected by the Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike 3.0 license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. Tales from the Archives. And Imagine That Studios, Ace Books production. I'm T. Morris. And I'm Philippa Ballantyne. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening.